Well, hi, it's Nicole Brandon, and welcome to Hourglass Bride. I am really intrigued by today's show. Months and months and months ago, when we were making lists of what we really wanted to bring you, the tools and the techniques, how to have that happily ever after, how to really communicate and have your lives. Today's show is actually at the top of my list. It was really a show that I wanted to bring you the proper information, the correct information, and really something that can help you as a couple, as you're bringing your lives together. And even for those of you who have been married 20 years, 25 years, 50 years, and you're really looking how to do these legal things together. So today's guest, I'm so honored and so privileged he's taken time out of his busy schedule to be with us. His name is Brett. Orson, and he is an attorney, a CPA, and a taxation specialist who has channeled his 30 years of broad, broad experience and trust in estate planning and family entity planning and accounting and taxation into really a comprehensive platform designed specifically for family support planning, and that is why he is here talking to you today. His multifaceted experience as an attorney and as a CPA, including his direct work with IRS experience, has uniquely positioned him to provide superior counseling on really a huge range of complex legal matters concerning property, income, gift, estate issues, and high net worth. So he is so much he's going to be talking to us today. He has experience in trust administration and litigation matters, and his asset recoveries, breaches, you know, a fiduciary, um, all, we were going to talk, his, his bio goes from my nose to my toes, but mostly what I was intrigued by is really that he's working specifically for the family support planning. He also has served as an invaluable strategic consultant to families and litigators across the vast array of trust and tax matters spanning through hundreds of cases. Let me repeat that. Hundreds of cases. It's meticulous behind scenes and forensic experience here's into the highest standard the highest standards of performance and discretion take. And of all the people that I could have chosen, he's really the one that was at the very top of my list. So I'm so excited he's going to be talking to his Respond swiftly to his clients, to their inquiries, to their examinations, to the requests, and his multidisciplinary background allows him to distangle the most challenging and complex financial transactions. And I know that's why you're listening to have you. He is the former principal of Brett B. Orson. Esquire Professional Law Corporation, which is a thriving independent practice, specializes in all aspects of income and estate tax matters for individuals, trusts, and estates. He founded his practice back in 2004 with the vision of creating Southern California's leading boutique law firm focused on estate planning, wills, trusts, probates, and income taxation. And prior to that, his firm was well regarded as the premier boutique firm that specialized in income trust, estate, and wealth transfer matters for high net worth individuals. And I'm just so excited because truly I think when we're looking at stepping into sharing a life together and all of these things that we talk about wills and estate planning and prenuptial agreements and even taking your vows, what are the legal ramifications, what are the legal matters, what are the legal ties that bind you as a couple, and then as 
your marriage steps forward and you grow closer and you're looking into your future as you're looking into your 10-year plan and your 20-year plan, your 25 and your 50 and as you're looking, you know, through your days and, and passing on to generations to come and where do you look for that legal advice and how do you know when it's the right time and how do you know who to turn to and the right questions to ask. And so I'm just so thrilled that he is with us today. So please welcome Brett Pinkerson. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicole. Nice to be here. Oh, my goodness. What a vast ray of experience you have. I absolutely well, yeah, you, am. <laughs> you, you did go on for a little, little longer than I thought. Well, I mean, but truly... Oh, no. I mean, as, and I didn't even read your complete bio, and, and it's always interesting to me when people are listening to the show that they realize this is just a sliver of your bio and what you do, and you're so accomplished. And so first tell us, how did you decide that you were, this is going to be your niche and this is the way that you were going to help people? Oh, that's a good question. When I was very young at about the age of 18, um, I, I envisioned myself dealing with people on a financial level and went into the trust in the state area as a CPA. And then over time, I went and got my law degree and began to practice law. But my focus has always been on trust in the state matters, which involves families. That's fantastic. And then when is the right time and you know this is a bridal show and we have so many different people listening to the show we have people that are just starting their lives together we have people that are marrying you know a spouse that already has children and so they're becoming a new family and sometimes they're combining their families and then we have people that have been married 25 years or 50 years that are listening to the show for the tools and techniques to deepen their relationship and so when is the right time for somebody to come to you um, that's a wide gamut, and I say that because uh, often younger couples are the most difficult to deal with because trust and estate planning has to do with mortality issues. It addresses when you die, and the younger you are, the less you envision your mortality, and they seem to put it off. They seem to think that there's no need to address it, that I'm going to live forever, and they delay, even if they come in as a client, even if they sign an engagement letter and they, they go forward, they procrastinate on executing the documents. And estate planning is a forever moving target. So it's constantly revised and redressed. Um, so executing the documents once is a good thing because they're in place. But when you, you speak about young couples, you, you think about whether or not they have children because the impetus there to create an estate plan has more to do with having a child. And, geez, what if we're both gone? Me and my husband are gone. What do we do then? And who's going to take care of our child? That's the principal concern for younger couples. So starting with a younger couple, the child's the impetus to create even a simple will in California. And I'm a California attorney, so I can only speak to California law. A, a, a will in California is a very simple document. You can handwrite it. As long as you sign and date it and it's all in your handwriting, then it constitutes a will. And even if the will says I leave everything to my husband, and yet if my husband's gone and I'm gone, I want my friend John Smith to be the guardian of my child, that's the biggest decision for a young couple. Who's going to take care of my child when I'm gone? If I was in an accident tomorrow. 
And, so, and that is really, I'm sorry for jumping in there, but that really is such an important question. And I know that people look at that, and especially there's so many couples that are far from their home. They're, they're here from different countries. They've moved to the United States. They, or they're alone. They're forging this road by themselves. They don't have family to turn to. And where do you begin? And where do you trust? And how do you make something legal and binding and know that if you are gone, that this is the consideration that will be the consideration that you wanted in your heart? Um, the, um, the subject of who takes care of your child when you're gone is so deep, and, and it's a wide continuum of choices. I mean, a lot of young couples think, oh, well, we'll pick our parents. They're still young enough to take care of our infant child if we were gone tomorrow. And yet some think, no, it's not going to be your parents. It's going to be my parents. So that discourse is often difficult between couples because they don't know who to choose. Is it an uncle? Is it a friend? Is it the best friends that have three kids and they contemplate whether or not that best friend is going to be the guardian if they're gone? And then you have to contemplate whether or not your child's going to mesh in with their children and whether or not they're going to be like the Cinderella stepchild or um, – uh, not, not treated the same. And also, when you think about someone being the guardian of your child, you also have to think about whether or not that same person is going to be the one who um, runs the money for that child. In other words, if you have assets, not only are you contemplating who's going to take care of your child physically, but who's going to take care of the money for that child over time. And there you kind of step back and go, well, geez, I don't know if I want the guardian to be the caretaker of my child and the caretaker of my money, because if they're the caretaker of my money, they might just use it to build an addition on their house to put a bedroom in that my child sleeps in. So it's a really tough question. You, you sometimes step back and on the trustee note of who watches the money for the child, you often contemplate whether or not you have co-trustees, that dear friend that you chose, the uncle that you chose, the parents that you chose, and maybe an independent third party that helps watch the money to make sure nobody does dip into those, those monies left to a, an infant child. And then do you need that person's permission? So if I said, okay, if something happened to me, I would want my best friend Chris to take my kids, and then... Do you need Chris's permission to do that? Because what happens if she passes away or you're gone and then your friend does not want that child or want to it, take care of that child? It's, it's always a good idea to ask the person, especially when it comes to children. And it's also a good idea to create a, a, a series of choices, not just one. Because like you said, if that person, Chris passes, who are the next two going to be just in case? And that person is not required to take on the responsibility. In California, if you name a guardian, that guardian has to be approved by the court. There's no two ways about it, and that's a good thing. You want the court to oversee that process. You want the court to give Chris a, a, the legal authority to, to deal with your children. But Chris is not bound. Chris can just deny the uh, responsibility. So in other words, you name Chris, and you don't name anyone else, Chris chooses not to do it, well, then it's up to any other interested party to step into a court of law and say, we'll watch, they'll raise their hand and say, we'll watch out for this child. And the judge very well might appoint that person, even if you didn't choose that person, if the court finds it's in the best interest of the child. So, no, Chris doesn't need to accept the responsibility, but it sure would be nice that Chris said that she would so that 
she knows that she's on that list, and then she knows to petition the court if you're gone. And you might even want to give Chris a copy of your will where you name that she's the appointed person to be the guardian of your children. That's such good information. It really is. And especially, you know, when we look at today's world and today's society, I mean, even, my goodness, just looking at the storm that just happened, you know, you have these natural disasters. And all of a sudden I remember that I went to New Orleans right after Katrina and all of these children, their entire families had been washed away and wiped away and little, little kids. And I know that people don't think it's going to happen. You know, when you have a child, you never think that's going to happen. But to have that in place is such a marvelous thing, and it's such a safety net, and it's such a security to do that. But it is, do you do that? I'm oh, sorry, yes. I, I was going to say, yeah, but it is such a difficult decision. Like I said, um, a couple always struggles with it. Is it going to be your parents or is it going to be my parents? Is it going to be my brother or is it going to be your sister? Or, you know what, I don't want my brother and I know you don't want your sister and we do think it should be the best friend, Chris. But again, when you think about the best friend, Chris, she has three boys and you have one girl. And you're thinking, do I really want to take my girl and put her in that environment with that family for the rest of her life? And that's at a very young age. I mean, like, like I mentioned earlier, estate planning is a never-ending moving target until you die. So when you have an infant that's three, you don't know if that child's going to be a scholar. You don't know if that child's going to be a drug addict. You don't know if that child might be in an accident at a young age and have special needs and require constant medical attention. When you don't know all those things, it's very hard to plan. As that child ages and becomes 12, 15, 18, and even 25, because for your more elderly audience, they contemplate, well, geez, if I'm worth a certain amount of money, when do my children get that money outright? How long do I leave it in trust? Do I leave it in trust until they're 18? Do I wait until they're out of college, say 25? Or do I let them have it all out of the gate, or do I lock it up until they're 60? Um, and that actually opens up a whole range of issues in that when you in, in California – Unlike, I think Canada does not even permit trust, for instance. But in, in California and the U.S., trusts are used across the board. Uh, they're quite common. And a husband and wife that creates a trust between themselves, that trust offers no asset protection. That trust is just like an alter ego. The trustees own the assets for the benefit of whatever the terms in the trust are. But where I'm going with that is, that when one of them dies or when both of them die and they leave an asset, assets in trust for the benefit of their children, that trust for the child is an asset protection trust. And when I say that, I go, that means a lot because asset protection is one of the first things that you contemplate with respect to estate planning. Uh, a young couple who buys a house, and in California generally if they have automobile insurance with the same carrier, that has the casualty insurance on their house, they can get an umbrella policy. And you can get an umbrella policy fairly inexpensively for like three to $500 per million dollars. And in other words, if someone has a slip and fall on your driveway and they are riding a skateboard and they bang their head and they sue you and you don't have an umbrella policy, you could very well lose your house if that's your principal asset. If, and you, you, the range on that is a million up to five. But why I mention that is that 
umbrella policy is one of the first things that I discuss with my clients and that it's very important to have. But take, take that away and think about an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old or a 24-year-old or even a 30-year-old who goes into business, signs a line of credit, and then goes bankrupt. If they have assets that you leave them at a young age, those assets will be gone because they went bankrupt. If those assets are left in a trust until age 25, till age 30 or 35 or even 50 or 60, it's a tool that protects those assets during the rest of their life or at least the term of that trust. So if it is locked up until they're 40, they go bankrupt when they're 25, the creditors might be able to reach the income stream from that trust, but they won't be able to reach into the trust and grab the assets out of it. So the, the, the whole concept of dealing with assets or dealing with the guardianship out of the gate and realizing that estate planning is a never-ending moving target, that these children are going to age and your wealth is going to accumulate and you're going to build assets together. And when you build assets together, you're, you're still thinking about estate planning. And then if we die, what do we do with these assets? And that, one concept is, oh, my children can manage the money. Or they can. And I, I started this thread with the whole idea with, that when children are young, you don't know what they're going to turn out to be. You don't know if they're going to be fiscally responsible. You don't know if they're going to be adventuresome, entrepreneurial, and go off into a business and potentially lose all their assets. You don't know whether or not to protect them with an irrevocable trust that's locked up until they're age 40, but which acts as an asset protection trust. So that the, you know, and I have to stop just for a minute. I, I, I went with kind of a, a wacky website years ago, 3D Estate Planning. And the reason I went with 3D Estate Planning was because I believe that you can conceptualize um, uh, financial issues with 3D volumes. And you, you move, it's a dynamic puzzle. It's constantly changing, and it starts with your children, but it moves into financial issues. And then what do you do with the assets? Do you leave them in trust? Do you leave them in one trust? Do you leave them in multiple trusts? It just opens up a, a huge gamut of issues. And then can you also put in trust for children that aren't born yet? If you have a three-year-old, can you say, this is the person that I would want to take care of my children, or this is how I would want the money to be handled, and not only for the children I have, but for any future children I may have, or every time a baby is born, do you need to redo it? Well, when you write a trust, you generally refer to your issue. Uh, in other words, you don't you name the children that you have when you're alive, but the dispositive terms, the terms that direct the assets when you die, you, you describe the children as your issue, and you leave a share to each one of your issues. So, you no, know, the trust is more or less self-adjusting. In that, if you have one child, you name that child in the trust that you draft, but the dispositive terms, where the assets go when you gone are gone, open it up to all of the children that you have. And the trust that I draft expands that in that if one of your children is born, has children, and dies, then that share to that deceased child will go to his children. So it is self-adjusting more or less. It's always good to revise it, but it's not necessary because the dispositive term include all issue. An issue is who you birth or who, who your children are. And then what is the difference between just a, a straight will? You know, and you're talking about estate planning, but if somebody just says, I'm leaving everything to my husband, or I want 
money to go to the puppies at the SPCA, you know, or whatever that is. What is the difference between the... Uh, well, in, in 2010, in California, the legislature did allow for pet trust, so that's, that's a really good point. If you don't have uh, any children, but you have that that favorite golden doodle that you wanted to create a trust for, you can, um, but you need a person there. Um, but, but removing that, uh, California um, has a probate process that's relatively expensive and complex, and probate means to prove the will. And a probate is required when you don't have a trust, for, in most cases. And don't get me wrong, I, I want to mix this up with another concept called will substitutes. Will substitutes are, are things like a brokerage account. Uh, you, you could have $60 million in a brokerage account, and you can designate where that goes by filling out a beneficiary designation for that brokerage account. That directs where the assets go when you die. No will is required. An IRA, a pension, a 401K, those all have beneficiary designations. Beneficiary designations direct where assets go when you die, regardless of what your will says. That's also true for life insurance and annuities. Life insurance, annuities, 401Ks, pensions, IRAs, even a brokerage account or a bank account all have beneficiary designation options. You fill those out, that's where the money goes. In other words, when someone dies with one of those assets and someone knows that they're the beneficiary of that account, they just call up the Merrill Lynch, they call up the Morgan Stanley, they call up the Goldman Sachs, and they say, my mother, my friend, my cousin died, and I understand I'm a beneficiary designation. If your name is on that beneficiary designation, that brokerage house or that bank will speak with you. They'll send you forms. You'll send them a death certificate after you sign those forms, and they'll turn around and send you the money with that account. So in other words, there are these satellite entities that can be directed to people without the use of a will. So we call them will substitutes, in effect. A, a will in California, if that's all you had, and you didn't use a will substitute, it is required to be probated. And again, probate means prove the will. And with a million-dollar estate in California, and that's, that's not too crazy, because even in the coastal areas, a piece of real estate for dirt is a million, million five, just for the ground alone. And real estate is one thing that you cannot use a will substitute, substitute on. They don't allow you to have payable on death deeds directing where an asset goes when you die. So imagining having a million-dollar estate, having a will, and dying, you're stuck with a probate, which is a minimum, minimum 11 months, maybe 15 months, uh, to go through the process with an executor, which is overseen by the court. And on a million dollars, the statutory fee, as I recall, is like $23,000 for the attorney and $23,000 for the executor. $46,000 to deal with the administration over a 15-month period, and it's very expensive. Unlike... That's incredible. And that, uh, that really uh, is when you think about what a huge chunk that is and the it, amount yeah. of time. It is. It, 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 it is just crazy. And that's really why living trust have, just came about in, in large part. The good thing about a living trust, and a living trust is a revocable trust. It's something that you can change during your lifetime. Again, it offers no asset protection. But a living trust in California avoids probate. 
And the good thing about a living trust is that it's private. The bad thing about a living trust is that it's private. In other words, no one's looking over the shoulder of the trustee unless someone pulls it into court. Whereas with a will, the publicity in a public forum like a Los Angeles Superior Court, there's a judge overseeing where those assets go. And he demands an accounting unless an accounting is waived by all the parties. So a living trust is good. And I deal a lot with uh, uh, nuclear families, a married couple, three kids. I deal a lot with blended families, three kids on one side, two on the other. And that's a complex subject that, that I want to come back to. But the, the idea of a living trust where you have a nuclear family and a good family, and, and, and I don't know if it's the eldest son, the eldest daughter, or the, the most financially responsible child is chosen to be the successor trustee if mom and dad are gone, it's really a fairly easy process to deal with the administration after death, unlike a probate. So when someone dies with a trust, there's actually a, a notice period whereby the trustee needs to mail out notice to all the heirs and all the beneficiaries and say, these are the terms of the trust, and we actually just send out the whole trust instrument. And you wait four months, and that four-month window when someone dies sending out a living trust is the time frame during which someone can contest the trust. If they don't contest the trust, it's more or less in cement, and then the trustee goes along with the administration. And the administration in those instances, oh, I don't know, 1500 to $4,000. It's just not that expensive to deal with the administration of a living trust if everything is organized on the front end. So the probate process is, in large part has been avoided with the advent of living trusts. And again, living trusts are good because they're private, but they're bad because they're private. Because if you have a bad trustee, they might just run off to Mexico with the money. That's such a crazy and incredible concept, but I know it's true. And, and one of the things I'm hearing when I'm listening to you is that you are so incredibly detailed. And I was looking at your background. Are you a forensic background? Is that correct? Is that what it says? Well, out of college, um, I worked for the IRS for two years. I was a CPA, uh, and, uh, you know, I was a CPA over time. But the IRS training was excellent because it caused you to think about what questions you need to ask as opposed to, uh, you know, you think about someone being audited. And I was, you know, I don't know if I was a good internal revenue agent or not. However, um, my manager was a little bit frustrated with me because he said um, too many people were calling in to say how nice I was. And that wasn't the goal <laughs> of the IRS. I love that. Sorry, go ahead. So they, they actually, you know, there was a, in Russia years back uh, the gulags, uh, and I, I I don't know if it was in the Gulag Archipelago. It's a, a two-volume book uh, about the gulags where the the people were imprisoned, and what they would do is they'd go out and hit one person, take them to jail, so that person's family would tell ten others that you don't mess don't mess around. You're, you're going to get thrown into a gulag. Well, in large part, that's the theory behind the IRS. Although their audit rate has fallen. The thought was, go out and audit one so everyone tells their friends they're being audited and everyone's more or less frightened. And, Nicole, tell me, if you were getting audited, wouldn't it be like kind of a hair-raising experience? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that whole idea. You'd be terrified and, and, and defensive and think that you did something wrong and not sure was there something you should have done that didn't trip the wire. 
Absolutely. And you'd probably tell 10 friends. Correct. And that's the whole concept. But it was a good experience because they put you through an extensive training program. Uh, I dealt with a lot of examinations, individuals, trusts, partnerships, corps. Um, uh, tr- trusts and estates are handled, or estates in particular are handled by attorneys at the IRS. So that's a whole different gamut. It's a whole different department. But it was just a great experience because it allowed you to go out and sniff documents. And it's really important to be able to suss out what it is you're dealing with. And that comes into play when you're dealing with a husband and wife that come in to discuss an estate plan because you need to, in short order, understand what assets they own, understand whether or not they have IRAs, 401Ks that are subject to beneficiary designations, be able to explain to them that those type of assets are controlled by the beneficiary designation, and anything that I write in a trust instrument or a will won't control where those assets go unless you direct them to the trustee of the trust after you're gone. So it turns into kind of a, a, a complex puzzle, and that's one thing I enjoy. I enjoy the puzzle element. I enjoy the families, and every family has their own story. The, the, the couples that come in, they, they both have to come in. You can't just have a wife or have a husband say, I'm going to go get an estate plan because the attorney needs to hear from both of them because it's a joint decision. One of them might spearhead it, but they both and need to make why I think that this is such an important subject for couples. I really think that as people are getting married or as a married couple or as a couple that's been together many years and now they have children or grandchildren or whatever that is, that this is really something that needs to be looked at and focused on. But I'm so impressed as I'm listening and talking to you about the incredible detail and the meticulous ability that you have to be able to separate your heart, your spirit, your soul, the betterment of the family, of the couple, of their future, and then each legal issue as a separate issue, all to create that clarity and that vision of what that couple is looking for. Well, thank you. You know, the, um, the, uh, the, the young couple issue, um, I, I, this is a bridal show, and in a way, when it comes to young couples, in California we have community property laws, and community property laws effectively say everything acquired during marriage and built during marriage is community property. Well, oftentimes people come into marriage, marriages with, with other assets to begin with, and those assets are separate property, at least under California law. And people discuss prenuptials, they discuss postnuptials, and I don't do family law. So I, I, I suggest anybody who really wants good information on family law, they need to speak with a family law attorney. However, it's interesting that when you have a, for instance, when you, have a, when you go and get a prenup, if you have a federal pension or a 401k that's governed by ERISA, to waive those rights, you actually have to be married. So someone might come in and say, this pension is going to be mine forever, and you're going to sign a prenup. Well, that prenup won't control the right that they're waiving if they're not married. So you can't sign the release to that right until after you're married. So the prenup won't affect any kind of pension plan that's governed by ERISA unless it's signed after marriage. It's a little nuanced, and I don't know family law, and I'm speaking about family law right now, but I'm just saying that's one little issue that – if someone says, oh, well, I want a prenup, I want to protect my assets, 
I kind of step back and I say, well, first of all, all those assets are separate property anyway, so as long as you don't commingle them, they won't become uh, community property. The problem, though, is if somebody had a, had a house, a rental property, and they had it before marriage, and let's assume it had no debt on it, but they, they had that house and then they got married. And then during their marriage, they started fixing up the house. They put in a new brick patio or they put in a new roof or they, they did it and they actually expended the energy doing a lot of the work. Well, that energy was community effort. So all of a sudden, little slices to that house becomes community property just because he worked on it during marriage, even though he owned the whole thing before. So there's an instance where you kind of say, well, geez, that's, that's where I do want a prenup. I want to be able to improve it. But I'm not a big advocate of prenups, especially with young couples. And, and one of the reasons I'm not is when you think about what community property is, the whole concept is the idea of building assets together. So when you, when you have two a couple that gets married, and let's say they both have separate assets, and they go, we're going to keep our assets separate. You kind of go, well, wait a minute. Where's the family unit here? Where's the family unit that's going to be building assets together? And I, in dealing with young couples, I, I've often suggested that why don't you create a little pool of money? I mean, if you each have your own separate property, put a pool together. Grow that pool together. Work together. Otherwise, you're working apart. And from a, just a holistic perspective you want people to grow together and have a long happy marriage why would you have this economic divide on the front end it's just a question it's a question that you don't ask that gets you into trouble and and creating a positive environment i I think is one of the things that you work through not with a priest but with a financial advisor and it doesn't need to be an attorney it can be a cpa it can be a life insurance agent Although a life insurance agent is going to want you to buy life insurance. I mean, don't get me wrong. But um, you need people that are... What happens if somebody somebody is, you know, especially you're in California, so you have a celebrity that was a rock star or a movie star and they have a big entrepreneur business person and they have all these assets, or if one of, you know, your, your two people is seriously in debt and you are now marrying into that debt. Do you still want to pull that debt and still want to pull those assets? Um, the, I'm, I'm a little hazy on the community property issues on debt, but um, community property, can, I believe, can be liable for separate property debts. And I'm, I'm saying uh, uh, someone has separate property, someone has a separate property liability, and someone's going to collect on it, the community can be liable for that. I believe, and this is something the family law attorney should, be, should confirm, I believe that the separate property might be uh, protected, but I'm not sure. So when it comes to those kind of issues, uh, I'm just a little hazy. But No, and then when you were talking about creating that, that pool together and that you want to actually, once you get married, bring the families together or bring that unity or bring that mutual vision and... and that focus, and so you were just sharing about when you're blending families, if you have three children and two children, and then how do you create that as a one singular unit? Uh, um, I, I, and I said I wanted to talk about blended families. Blended families are the toughest. Um, no matter how much a step parent loves his or her stepchildren, they're not theirs and if they have their own 
children from a prior marriage, that's one issue. If the couple has a child from th- that marriage, it's another issue. So you always step back, and, and just let me give you an example. You have, you have a blended family with three children from a prior marriage, and together they marry and they only have one child. And it was the wife that had three children from the prior marriage, and the couple had one child from their marriage, and they're contemplated in the state plan. And the, the husband said, well, I only have one child. When I die, that child's getting everything that I have. And the other spouse says, well, wait a minute, I have four children, and I'm going to split 25% each with them. Well, it just opens a whole can of worms. If you try to set that whole concept up into an equation, one person's given 25% of half, which is 12 and a half. So all four children are going to get 12 and a half percent, which adds up to 50%. And the one child of the, the husband, he's going to get 100% of his 50%. So one child is going to get 50% plus 12 and a half, 62 and a half percent. And each of the other one is going to get 12 and a half. It's very disproportionate. But should it be any other way? And I'm, I asked the question, should it be any other way? Because I'm not the judge. I, I, I place no, um, I have no personal skin in the game, and my job is only to see what it is that the couple wants to work out. And, and let me mention one more thing about California law and, and dealing with a couple. Every client that comes to see me, they, if they engage me, they sign a conflict waiver. And there's an inherent conflict between spouses. They, um, whether, or not, whether or not it's whose uncle is going to take care of the child versus my mom and dad or, 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 or a friend, they have this conflict because they have to mutually decide. And if that conflict ever gets out of hand between the couple, I have to resign. I can't represent either of them. With a blended couple, that conflict's even greater. And it's never my position to judge their decision um i'm going to kind of skirt over into another area well when couples come in there's generally four principal documents that i recommend that they have it's a will it's a trust it's an advanced health care directive for medical purposes and it's a limited power of attorney the the will is a pour over will it says if i die and i do have something to probate your honor put it in my trust and so it's a pour-over will. It just gets into the trust. So the trust is the, is the mechanism by which the assets are, are, are transferred to the children after death. An advanced health care directive is used for medical purposes. A limited durable power of attorney, um, I say limited because all the assets should be in the trust and the financial matters are handled by the trustees of the trust, but the limited power of attorney gives someone authority to deal with an IRS uh, audit or sign a tax return if you're in a coma or uh, deal with the Social Security Administration if you can't, or obtain third-party information. It's just it has general needs. The Advanced Health Care Directive obviously takes care of um, someone else making medical decisions for you if you can't. And where I was going to go in the beginning was that Advanced Health Care Directives, for instance, one of the questions I have to ask is, do you want to be cremated or buried? Do you want your agent after you're gone to be able to donate your body parts under the California Anatomical Gifts Act. Well, people come back with all sorts of responses. And 
those responses are, are personal to them. And the worst thing an attorney could do is suggest, with respect to a personal response, that it's wrong. And there's nothing wrong for anyone. There's nothing wrong to leave 25% to four children, um, I think that was my example earlier, across the yeah. board. And there's nothing wrong with 62.5 going to one and 12.5 going to the three others. It's, it's personal and unique. And on that note, because estate planning is a never-ending moving target, the idea of sharing your estate plan with other people is always something that I suggest do with great reservation. In other words, you create a document. You send that document out to people, whether it's your children or friends or someone else. It's out there, and people know about it. If you change that document and you don't send it out, people don't know that you changed it, for one, but they also have a preconceived notion of what it is that you're going to do with your estate plan because you sent it out to begin with. So I guess my, my point about that is I don't believe it's a good idea to share that information. It's personal. It's, someone, it's information that no one should, be, should judge or get upset about. And when you're gone, it will all be taken care of. And the good thing about it is when you're gone, you're not there for anyone to get mad at. Right. And then when you're talking about the will, the trust, the advanced health care directive, and the limited power of attorney, that's for every state. You know, we were talking about California law, but those are four things that every couple should really have, correct? Well, again, I can't speak to other states, but generally I'd suspect yes. Uh, Forty-nine of the 50 states, I think, are more or less similar. The, The very difficult state for me to understand is Louisiana because it's a civil law state. And uh, I, I just don't even want to go there, but you're right. And the, the, the four documents together effectively allow things to be maintained outside of a court, a court of law. Um, and I say that because if you don't have those documents and all of a sudden uh, you, uh, Alzheimer's slips in or you, you, you fall down and you go into a coma or you have a, a terrible um, disease or something and you just can't manage things, it brings up the subject of a conservatorship. Well, generally, with an advanced health care directive, someone can make medical decisions. With a trust where you've transferred assets to the trustees of the trust, the trustees control the financial issues. If you have a limited power of attorney, someone can sign tax returns for you. So the documents taken together allow you to avoid the formalities of a conservatorship, but in effect act like a conservatorship. And the good thing about it is it's private. The bad thing about it is it's private. No one's looking over anyone's shoulder like they do in a um, in a conservatorship where a judge is involved. This is just such brilliant information. And how do people find you? I mean, you're so incredible, and your information is so brilliant, and you are so clear. And I've learned, just as I'm listening to you today, so much, and I know that I'm have so many more questions for you beyond this show as so many more people will but I would love for people to be able to really reach out and to be able to talk to you and to be able to have you handled because you can sense that your sense of care is so high and so deep and you are so committed to really helping people and so do people find you through your website or by calling you or what's the very best way you know when it's that's interesting when um, you bring up the notion of a phone number and someone calling did you hear about the attorney that 
that uh, this woman called and said, are you the attorney that charges a thousand bucks for two questions? He says, yeah, what's your second question? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's truly tasteless. But no, I do have a website. It's, <laughs> it, it's 3destateplanning.com. But I also have uh, about, I don't know, 20, 30 uh, YouTube presentations. And, and I started doing that um, to share technical thoughts about different issues in California. Um, I'd mentioned, and, and that's Bjornsonism. Uh, I don't know why they popped up on YouTube when I signed up, but there's 30 uh, presentation on fairly complex trust and estate matters on YouTube under the name Bjornsonism. Um, I have uh, at Bjornson Laws my Twitter uh, handle, I guess you'd call it, and um, 3D Estate Planning. But on the 3destateplanning.com point, the estate planning matter is probably should have been 5destateplanning.com. And I mention that because when you get in, I was in Palo Alto for a long time. When I was in Palo Alto, it was 10 to 100 million um, uh, net worth because it was in the dot-com environment. And the 10 million were the administrative people. And a lot of this advanced estate planning, what I call the exotic trusts, were there. However, and, and this is an important point for anybody to know, a single person in 2013 can die with $5,250,000 and not have an estate tax. That means a husband and wife can shelter $10,500,000, $5,250,000 times two. $10 million is a lot of money. And if you don't have $10 million, you really question whether or not you need an exotic estate plan. For that matter... I don't know if you don't get more than $15 million that you really need some of these advanced things because the ideal state plan is you're going to spend some of it before you're gone. But I, I say that – why did I say that? Why did I bring up exotics? But, Just because um, I like the name exotic estate plan because it's a great name. <laughs> that would be good, exoticestateplan.com. But, no, where I was going was 5D estate planning. In California, we have Prop 13 which allows people to keep their property taxes down. And when mom and dad bought the house for $30,000 and they're only paying three grand a year and it's worth $2 million, if somebody buys that $2 million home, they're going to pay 1% of that or $20,000 a year. If a parent transfers the house to a child, they have a parent-child transfer exclusion whereby the child can keep the $3,000 property tax base instead of paying the 20000 a year. So I, I just went into property tax issues, income tax issues, gift tax issues, estate tax issues, and then the California probate code. Those are five different subjects. And on all the tax issues, sometimes they have inverse effects. In other words, you might have a saving, savings in property taxes, but you have an uh, income tax consequence or, or a gift tax consequence that goes the other way. So, so I say 5D because you don't know which one to do. And it is a complex puzzle. It's not always easy. It's just incredible. There's so much information. And then for those that are not in California or for you know, those that are in other countries that are listening to our show, what's the best way to find somebody to do estate planning? How do you know if somebody... Is, has your best interest at heart, and, and where do you even begin? You know, I'm an attorney that doesn't like attorneys, and I say that from, <laughs> from the perspective that um, a lot of attorneys uh, like to litigate. 
so, so there's one group of people that you kind of go, wait a minute, isn't there an easy way out? Isn't there a right solution to this? And with families, it's always tough because you don't know. But I, I guess that's a tone of something I wouldn't like. I, I wouldn't want someone to be judgmental. Um, on the estate side, I often question how an attorney who doesn't have a tax background can practice in the estate planning field. Because I just mentioned that this 5D concept, this property tax, income tax, estate tax, and gift tax going different ways can have different consequences, um, uh, but can be detrimental. So when you ask that, I go, well, geez, I, I think I'd want someone with a tax background if they're an estate planning attorney, period. So. Asking whether or not they have an estate background is, is critical. And let me just give you a simple example of that. Like I said, in California, with real estate prices as high as they are, somebody has a, a house that's worth a million dollars, and they're going to gift it. They're going to gift it to a child. And they're not going to have a taxable estate. So they just want to gift it to the child to avoid probate or something. But they only paid, let's say, 100000 for that house. When you gift a house to someone, the, the gift, the, the basis, what the mom paid for that house, $100,000 transfers to the donee. It transfers to the child. So the person gifts a house worth a million dollars, the basis of which is hundred grand. They gift it to the child. The child's basis is hundred grand. So if the child later sells that house, they have $900,000 worth of gain. Well, there's other income tax issues like the 250 grand exclusion on the sale of a home that come into play, or the 500 for a married couple. But I, I, I raise this issue because if someone dies with the home and then leaves it to the child, they get something called a step-up in basis. Step-up in basis means that even though the mother only paid 100 grand, when the child gets that house as a result of a death, the child's basis in that house will be a million dollars. So if she sells it, she'll have no gain or loss. Matter of fact, she'll have a loss because if she pays a 5% commission on a million-dollar house, 50000 she'd have a 50 grand loss on that commission if she sold it relatively soon after mom died. So, so there's a simple income tax matter. When it comes to foreign issues, I, I have to tell you, it's just you really want someone who knows foreign issues well. And I'll be honest, I don't. I don't deal with a lot of people in France. Recently I did, though. And I found out that I think France has a mandatory um, uh, airship law in, in that I think it, either all or a portion of the assets are required to go to children, whereas that's not true in the U.S. There's no requirement that if you have three kids, you have to leave your assets to the kids. You can leave all of your assets to a charity. You can leave it to a foundation. You can leave it to a girlfriend. You can leave it to a boyfriend. You can leave it to the maid if you want. Or to your so, snickerdoodle, what did you say, or to that golden retriever? Golden doodle. Yes, we have pet trusts, and you could leave $50 million in a pet trust, but that pet, the only pet that it can cover is the pet that's around when you died. It doesn't apply to the pet's offspring. So sorry, really? it's not a generation skipping pet trust. <laughs> that's amazing that, you know, when we think of that each and every one of these aspects and it's like a kaleidoscope and the picture just shifts and changes and I know that we had we don't have a lot of time yet but somebody did have a question about the prenup as far as so you're saying that some of the property you have to actually wait until you're married to be able to clarify whose property it was that no, it, it had yes. more to do with the the right um, 
ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, controls federal pension plans. And it's my understanding, again, it's a family law question, but a 401K, which a lot of people have, I believe is governed by ERISA. Rights to a plan can't be given up until they're obtained. In other words, a spouse doesn't obtain rights to an ERISA plan until they're married. Well, prenup is pre-marriage, post-nup is post-marriage. If you sign a prenup, how can you waive rights that you don't have until you're married? So you have to waive those rights with a post-nup. Well, couples get married. One of them says, I want to have a prenup. He says, fine, signs the prenup, and she didn't really want to sign it, or he didn't really want to sign it. And afterwards, they're going, okay, I want a post-nup. Well, I don't want to sign it. You want to get a divorce? You know, it, it, so in other words, federal rights, certain federal rights can't be waived until you're married. Therefore, you cannot waive them with a prenup. Just mm, brilliant information. And I, I mean, it, this is such an important subject, Brett, and I'm so grateful that you took time out of your day to be on this show. And truly, when we were making a list of what information do I want to bring to people, because this show is really about bringing people the proper tools and techniques and how to be able to come together, whether that's financial planning, how to buy a house, how to create their life together, relationships, communication. And this is a truly important subject for a couple and you've been so clear on this information and I'm so grateful that you know you've taken the time to do this and that you've given us as much information that you've given us and I'm looking at this list too and and so for all of our listeners on this show to make sure that they have these four things a will a trust an events healthcare directive and a limited power of attorney. And do they have these things, and where have they gone, and have they talked about it as a couple? And then even couples that have been married 25 years or have been married a very long term, they can still find you and still create Three, estate 3D, planning and wills for their future, right? 3destateplanning.com. Planning.com. Just fantastic. I so appreciate this information. And if there was one bit of advice that you would give to a couple getting married about how to be able to pull their lives and their estates and their future together, what would it be? What would you hmm. say? I think it would run along the lines of um, it's twofold. Much like I said in the beginning, have a common pot that builds a common thread that allows the family to bond together as opposed to driving them apart. And when you sit down with advisors, if you don't like them, don't go back. You really have to have a relationship with that person. You have to trust that they're not going to judge you, and you have to trust that they're giving you good information and that they understand all the facets to estate planning. So it's twofold. It's like look for a positive environment for yourselves, but make sure you have a positive environment with your, your advisors. You really want a constructive, overall, holistic environment. That's brilliant information. Thank you for that. And can you go ahead and spell your name and the YouTube for our listeners? Uh, Brett Bjornson, B-R-E-T-T, last name is B-J-O-R-N-S-O-N. And on YouTube, it's Bjornsonism, B-J-O-R-N-I-S-M. It's a great place to go watch videos about California estate planning law. Well, you are just terrific, and truly you are my hero. This information is just this wealth of knowledge and wisdom and truly something I think that's so important for 
every couple and everybody that's starting their lives together and people that are sharing a life together that are looking for their future and their future generations. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Nicole. It's been fun. My pleasure. (laughs) Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Wow. What incredible information. It's interesting because I've so often thought about that. Who do you go to? How do you go? Where do you ask the right questions as far as your health care, as far as who is making those decisions for you, who's going to take care of your children if something should happen to you, and none of us ever want to think that something's going to happen. But if it does, how do we make those decisions? How do we make sure that our future generations are taken care of? And this information today was so clear. It was so concise, with such precision, and with such heart and intent, and just amazing. I love the fact that he has YouTube videos, so go to Brett Bjorsen and check out his information, reach out to him, and truly, if you were looking to plan your future, this is where I would go. So with great gratitude for all this information today. I think it's such an important show. I really do. Anyway, I wish you all a wonderful week. This is Nicole Brandon with Unlimited Life and Hourglass Bride. And next week, we have incredible shows for you on Unlimited Life. We have Matt Weinstein, one of my favorite people on the whole planet, who is one of the funniest, most hysterical, who's going to teach us how to play, not just in business, but in relationships as well. And then next Sunday on Hourglass Bride, we have one of the shows that we've been having so many requests on, which is such a huge jump from estate planning. But dealing with the health and beauty aspect of the marriage and something that you've really been longing for. So we're bringing a very special guest on. So I wish you all a wonderful week. This is Nicole Brandon with Hourglass Bride. And again, great gratitude and thanks to Brett B. Orson for all of his information on estate planning. And I wish you all the happily ever after. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>